Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Beginning in Exodus chapter 10 at verse 1, extending through chapter 13, verse 14, these three chapters now will tell us this particular part of the story of the Exodus, specifically the part that we're going to refer to is the last three judgments upon Egypt and the actual event we call the Passover, the actual event of the judgment uh, of God upon the firstborn of Egypt, which brought about the redemption and the deliverance of Israel under Egyptian bondage. In the previous portion, we covered the first seven judgments, but now in this portion, it covers the last three, which are that of locusts, of the darkness that came for three days, and then the death of the firstborn. But there's a kind of a thread that's going to now lace through this portion, and the reason that they give this portion the title in the Hebrew, Bo, which is the title, is from the first verse, which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. And the word go in Hebrew is Bo. And what we're going to hear is we're going to hear this word Bo go through this passage a number of times. And just to give you a kind of a precursor to it, you're going to hear first hear God say to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say these things. Then we're going to hear Pharaoh say, go, Israel, go from Egypt, but leave your children. That's no solution. That's not going from Egypt. Then he's going to say, go, but don't take your animals. And then he's going to say, get out of my sight. Go. And then finally, Egypt will say, go out, get out of here. And you'll hear this word go all throughout this passage. Everybody's telling everybody to go. But actually, what we really need to be asking ourselves, if I could use kind of an American colloquial expression, is we need to be asking, what's going on here? And what's really going on here is is that Israel's not going to go because Israel wants to go because Pharaoh wants Israel to go, or even because the Egyptians want Israel to go. They're going to go, Israel's going to go, because the Lord is going to bring them out. And in fact, if I could take you to almost one of the last verses, in fact, the last verse of this passage, Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, let me read for you again, so you have the conclusion right up front. This is a little bit I'm telling you up front what we're going to do. Verse 14, and it says, And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. The answer to the question of why did Israel leave Egypt is because the Lord brought Israel out, not because Pharaoh said go. Not because Moses said go, not because Israel said they wanted to go, not because the Egyptians said get out is because the Lord did it. And the Lord's going to get all the credit for this. And it's by His powerful hand and by His judgments. And the one thing that I would hope that we would grasp from the ancient story that we're going to review here is is that we'll come to that conclusion just as the Scripture gives to us. It's not because a bunch of men got together and said, we think it's a good idea to leave Egypt. It's because the Lord did this. And the Lord's going to get all the credit for it. And what I'm really specifically trying to home in on is that there's a parallel that you're going to find in this particular segment that tries right to our new covenant faith. When it shall be asked, 
How is it that you left the earth and you came into God's kingdom? You will not answer and say, it's because I said I wanted to go. It will not be because others, other brethren said to you, well, why don't, why don't you go to the kingdom? It will not be because uh, the devil said, get out of my sight. It will be because, because God brought you to his kingdom. And that's the most immediate parallel that I want you to draw attention to from this. That's what we should be getting from this story, is the, the great work of God's hand uh, that is being displayed here with Egypt. Now, let's examine... Uh, real quickly, these judgments that fall upon, these last three judgments that fall upon Egypt. And there's always a lesson to be taught in these judgments. If you've heard me speak on the subject of the judgments on Egypt before, you've heard me say this, and I'll say it again. There is a parallel between the judgments that fell upon Egypt and the future judgments that will fall upon this world. The judgment that fell upon Egypt was God displaying and manifesting himself to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the sons of Israel, so that they might know the Lord. There's another set of judgments coming. Well, instead of ten judgments, as they did in Egypt, it's a set of three sets of seven judgments in the book of Revelation. But the objective is the same. The Lord will be manifesting himself so that the whole world might know the Lord. And therefore, if the same purpose and objective is there, we're going to find some other parallels because God's obviously doing the same thing. We'll find a number of parallels. And in this two sets of judgments, the next two, the eighth and ninth judgment, you're going to see a striking parallel to future judgments. So you should pay close attention to these judgments in Egypt, that of locusts and of the darkness, to understand because they are your future. They are the future of the world. In Exodus chapter 10, and beginning at verse 12, Moses now gets ready for the judgment of locusts. There it reads as follows. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day, and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt, and they were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now for us here, all we basically can understand about this plague of locusts is it's very severely described. It says there was nothing green left. A few short years ago, I happened to read an article of a farmer that was, I believe, was up in North Dakota. He just had a little locust infestation hit his farm. It was a little one, but it hit his farm pretty good. In one day, they came in and they settled in on his farm. They ate everything. They even ate the kid's nylon trampoline that had been sitting out in the backyard because it had fiber in it. You know, one of those big trampolines, the black nylon, they ate 
it. They ate the caulking out of his windows of his house, and window panes fell out of their windows. They ate everything. So that was, that was a little locust infestation on just one guy's farm. Uh, essentially, what Egypt had to face here was they'd had these seven previous plagues. In each case, they had been increasingly worse. Each one had judged one of their gods. And now suddenly these locusts came in, and essentially there was nothing left. There was nothing left green. It was just gone. It was just completely gone. And uh, there was nothing left to eat. It was just bare ground. There wasn't a leaf on a tree. There wasn't any bushes left. It was just sticks sticking up. It was dry, and it was gone. And you can imagine the shock you know, that came to Egypt. And actually, God, what he's trying to display to, to Pharaoh is, is that, you know, it's like a clean sweep. When I come through, I just like sweep the place clean. There's nothing left uh, for you to hang on to. And Pharaoh, quite honestly, had been kind of hanging on to a little bit, you know, each time. Each plague was increasingly upping the stakes, so to speak. But this is pretty devastating. So this one really zonked him uh, here. Uh, and then... On the heels of that, then we have the judgment of darkness. Continuing now in Exodus 10, beginning at verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, by the way, um, even though Pharaoh said, forgive me and all that, he still didn't let the people go. I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, there's nothing left. But he, I guess he still had enough hardness left. He just said, no, I'm not going to let him go. So here comes the plague of darkness. Exodus 10, beginning at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. You ever heard kids when they say that they are afraid to go into a room because it's dark and they're afraid of the darkness? Or, you know, when you put them to bed and you close the door and there's no light and they cry and they, they're afraid of the darkness. Egypt was afraid of the darkness. Can you imagine three days of being afraid? Like children, afraid. I mean, when it says they didn't go out of their places, the reason they didn't go out because they were frozen with fear. You want to make people really afraid? Just take all the light away. It's scary. When I was in Colorado, I, uh, I took a tour to um, a certain cave they have up there. And it's a very interesting tour because they take you to one place where there truly is no light whatsoever. And they turn the lights off that you go through the little cave thing and you get the feeling of, of what real darkness is. It's absolute darkness. It is so dark. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. If you try to position your hand up to your nose, you'll run into your nose. You cannot see your hand. It's that dark. It's, and when they turn the lights out, they only do it with the tours just for a few short moments because people would panic. In fact, they, they, they have to do it. They, they have to have a backup emergency light because if they turn the lights out and if they left you in there for in a few moments, in a few moments, the tour, knowing where they're at, and it's only going to be for a few short moments, the panic sets in. 
the fear sets in so strongly that it can actually emotionally kind of disturb people. Is Egypt was in this for three days. Three days frozen with fear. The Lord was getting their attention. And interestingly enough, why Pharaoh wanted to see Moses right away after that. You get him back here, get him back. And so he comes back and there's an interchange that follows after this event. Continuing in verse 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Here's that verse, go again. See, here's Pharaoh. Go, get out, go, go, you know, you can go. Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you this time. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock, too, will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we will show, shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You are right. I shall never see your face again. Which now sets the stage for the final judgment. If you go back through and you survey all of these judgments, they just increasingly got worse and worse and worse. And in these last two, we see locusts that just eat everything. You know, the, the panic is now setting in on Egypt. And they've been confronted with very fearful, difficult things. And, you, and just for a moment, we can kind of imagine, you know, how bad that is. But brethren, I have news for you. If you think this was bad, if you think this was bad back in Egypt, wait till you hear what the Lord has planned for the world that is like these plagues in the future. Because there's one set of judgments that's going to be exactly like this, only it's locusts that come with the darkness at the same time. Let me read that judgment to you. It's in the book of Revelation and in chapter 9. Now having just a foretaste of what God did back in Egypt, let us hear what the Lord says is going to happen in the Great Tribulation. Revelation chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. The earth is going to be darkened, not for three days. Scripture says for five months. Five months darkened. Do you know what it would be like to wake up one day and there is no sun? No sunlight, no moonlight, no stars, just total clouds so thick it's dark. And it explains how in the world it will happen to us. It says that some sort of asteroid, meteorite, comet, body, some sort of heavenly body is going to deep impact the earth. And when it strikes the earth, it's going to open an abyss in the earth. It's going to open a big hole in the earth and fire and debris and dirt and is going to billow up into the atmosphere and fill the atmosphere of the earth and darken us for five months. And by the way, 
according to scientists, they say that if we were ever struck by an asteroid, here's what it would do to us. If we had a deep impact scenario here on the Earth, an asteroid of this type would penetrate into the Earth, open up the pit in the Earth, and great billowing clouds of dirt and debris and smoke would come forth, and it would fill the atmosphere. This is what scientists say now, and it could fill the atmosphere with so much smoke and debris that it could darken the Earth for six months. That's what scientists say. You know, they made a movie out of this prediction that was made by the scientists. They said it would be darkness for six months. The Bible says it'll be five. It'll be five. Almost. You know, the scientists are agreeing with what the prophecy says will take place. Only there's something different about this darkness and about this pit because it says that there are creatures down underneath in the surface of the earth, underneath the surface, there are creatures that have been entrapped there. We don't know about them right now. But the Bible says there are creatures down there and that when that pit is opened up, when that darkness comes forth over the earth, it says these creatures are going to come out to the surface of the earth. This is what the prophecy continues to say. Verse 3, and out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth was like the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle, and they have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them. The angel of the abyss, his name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollon. It's not helicopters, brethren. This is not some fanciful, archaic, ancient description of some modern effect here where some, you know, the prophet saw some modern device we have in our day and was just describing it in his terms. No, these are demons. This is bad news. The scripture has told us that when Satan fell from heaven, that there was a whole group of them that fell with him, and some of them were put captive. Some of them were made captive in the abyss. And this says that they'll be released. Why would God ever permit a bunch of trapped demons to come forth on the earth and torment mankind? I submit to you it's the same reason that he judged Egypt is because he's always going to take those gods that man has set up against him and prove to them that they're not God. And there are people on this earth who do worship demons. And he's going to give them some. And they're going to find out they're not so fun. It says it'll be so frightening. Men will seek death and not find it. You think being afraid of the dark is bad. You think a bunch of locusts that come in and eat everything is bad. Wait till you see these. Wait till you see these locusts that come with the darkness that's in this future judgment. See, God is escalating. He's trying to get man's attention. 
He's trying to get them to turn to Him, to cry out, to call for God's salvation, to turn from their own ways and their false gods, to turn to Him. Now, this isn't the only place that the prophets speak of this particular darkness and these locusts. The prophet Joel has spoken of these too. In fact, if you would turn with me over to the prophet Joel so you'll know that John wasn't just talking through his hat. By the way, for those of you who might want to do a study on the book of Joel, the book of Joel, the whole book, the whole book is about the Great Tribulation from start to finish. He's the prophet of the Great Tribulation. And so he writes all kinds of prophecies about what's getting ready to happen to the last generation. And beginning in Joel chapter 2 and verse 1, we're going to hear a parallel passage to what we just talked about. In fact, we sang the song part of this tonight. Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Listen to this. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Just like the day that's described back there in Revelation. When that, uh, that comet, asteroid thing, hits the earth and it causes all the clouds to come up and there's darkness comes over the surface of the earth. It says that there's these creatures that come forth. Remember? You know, the prophet said there was these creatures that came in the darkness, that came and so forth. This is what Joel says about that darkness. He says, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it nor will there ever be again after it, to the years of many generations. Listen to this. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. Just like those locusts. You know those locusts? It was green, but when they go through, it's nothing. It's gone. Nothing at all escapes them. What are we talking about? Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arrayed for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They each march in a line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. And when they burst through the descendants, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Now there's a very popular messianic song. They run on the city, you know, they run on, rush on the wall. Great is the army. That's a song about demons. That's not about us. That's a song about the judgment of God that's going to come on the world. That's not about us, and you don't want anything to do with them. In fact, when you see them, you'll be scared half out of your wits. It'll be like back in Egypt when the locusts came through and ate everything. It'll be like the darkness that you can feel. It'll be only it's all put together, and it'll be ten times worse than anything that Egypt ever saw. It'll be a great judgment that comes upon the world in about the last five months of what we call the Great Tribulation, which is about three and a half years long. But these are what we call the final days of the indignation, a very great judgment. The reason I 
point this out to you is I want you to get the parallel. I'm not trying to terrorize you. <laughs> I'm not trying to make you afraid. I'm trying to give you, if you will, for just a moment, a sense of how great were these judgments back in Egypt. And yes, there is a version of these judgments that will be in the future. And therefore, if we'll learn the lessons of the past, how did the people of God survive these judgments? What, what happened? How, how, did, how were they able to avoid the judgment, be on God's side? Then you'll be wise in the future, and when those great judgments come upon the whole world, you'll be wise and you'll know where to be and what to do. You remember how it said of, um, how it said of Israel that they had light in their dwelling places? You know, they had light. It says, the, the prophecy says, we're going to have light when there's darkness. It says, you and I will have light. In fact, let me show you that. The, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 16, speaking of the very event we just read of the prophet Joel and of the book of Revelation, here's what the prophet Joel talks about, you and I. Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 1. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And the nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. There's just this huge contrast. This contrast between the world and its great judgment that's being received of God and the people of God, while well, in the midst of the judgment, they have light. They have protection. Do you remember those locust beasts? They can go out and torment any man except those that have the seal of God in their foreheads. Except those. And how many of them are there? 144,000 of them. And so when the darkness comes, brethren, let me give you some simple counsel. When the darkness comes in the great tribulation, where do you want to be? You want to find those guys that have the seal of the living God in their forehead, and you want to stick to them, because they cannot be harmed, and that's where the light will be. And that's how you avoid that judgment. That's how, if you were like Israel back in Egypt, you would have stayed in dwelling places where Israel was and who God, who distinguishes between Israel and Egypt, and God will distinguish between you and others. Therefore, those judgments are not upon you, but upon the world. You will see them, though. You will know of them. You will know it's the hand of the Lord. And just as there was Moses and Aaron who stood up and announced each of the judgments and warned Israel and prepared them and so forth, you'll have warning. You'll know that they're coming. In fact, every one of you has a warning book in the book of Revelation telling you exactly every judgment coming. And if you believe the word, the warning word that's been given, then you'll know what to avoid. You'll know where to be, who to look, who you can trust and who you can. Because the Lord has a plan there. And essentially... If you can get the connection for just a little bit now of this eighth and ninth judgment and how God used this in Egypt, and you can see how it's going to be into the future for the last generation when the Lord comes back, well, then you ought to be real interested in about this last judgment. This last one is the most important one that came to Egypt. It's the one that has set precedent for us spiritually, and is the one that, if, if there's any of the judgments to understand, it's this last one that you really want to understand. If, if there's one to draw a parallel to, it's this last one that you want to draw a parallel to. Because the last judgment that came upon Egypt was the death of the firstborn. Egypt's firstborn 
will now suffer. And so you might ask yourself the question, well, why the firstborn? Locusts are pretty bad. Uh, darkness is pretty bad. What, what, what is going on? Why is God uh, using the death of the firstborn to be this final thing to conclude this matter with Egypt. It goes back to things that God said before. Now, we're in Exodus uh, chapter 10 and 11. That's where we're at. But, but I want you to go back a little bit earlier so you can see how this was all planned going back to Exodus chapter 4. This is back at the moment when, when Moses is being dispatched to Egypt the first time. And when Moses is being dispatched to Egypt, he tells, Moses is told what's going to be happening, that these judgments, they're all going to end up coming to this. And so in Exodus chapter 4, beginning at verse 22, this is what is said. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, and this, this is Exodus 4 now, this is before the judgments start happening. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him be go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. It was always going to come to this. You know, Pharaoh didn't really get it. You know, he didn't believe what Moses said. You know, you mean it's all going to come down to the firstborn of Egypt? Yes, it's going to come down to your son, Pharaoh. We're going to go through all these other judgments, but we're ultimately going to get to your son. And you know what is so interesting about this little prophetic picture that, that Moses is giving to Pharaoh about the judgments that came on Egypt is there's a secret clue in this passage about the last generation. There's a secret clue in here. If you've got your eyes open and your ears open and you've got your heart open, it's what we call the sowed level of the Torah. There's a special hidden clue, a little mystery in here for the future generation because that's what it's going to come to for us. Because in that phrase, Israel is my firstborn, is my son, my firstborn, the sages of Israel found a very interesting thing. Every third letter in the Hebrew of that expression spells the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem belongs to the Lord. And the scripture tells us prophetically that in the last generation that it will be over Jerusalem that all this judgment will come upon the world. It's going to start with that and end with that. Just like the death of the firstborn. It started with that subject, it's going to end with that subject. And Jerusalem is what is going to cause all nations to come against God and God's people. Jerusalem. They're all going to come against Jerusalem. And guess where Yeshua is going to be returning on the day of the Lord? Jerusalem. It's, a, it's going to start with Jerusalem. It's going to end with Jerusalem. That's the reason why you and I should be paying very close attention to current events going on in this world because the world has now come center stage to an issue in this world called the Middle East, specifically Israel, specifically a certain city called Jerusalem. And the conflict that's going on in the world right now is about Jerusalem. It's about Jerusalem. And the prophecies are very clear about that. And if you can see the pattern of how God planned these judgments and brought it to a conclusion with Egypt. It was over God's firstborn that that was what he was, if you will, fixated on. Israel, my son, my firstborn. And that's the reason why all this trouble came to Egypt. I have news for you. For the world, it's Jerusalem. God is like fixated on Jerusalem. 
the city of the king. And he says, I'm not going to give it up. We, we prayed the song tonight, and, and it's, it's been the watchword of generation after generation. We've prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord says, I've set watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, and I have told them to give themselves nor the Lord no rest until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all of the earth. Until this situation over Jerusalem is resolved, this world is going to be a mess, and that will be what God resolves. And when we all get together with God in the kingdom, and the first place we're going to assemble is Jerusalem. It's going to start and end with Jerusalem, just like it started with the firstborn. The subject of the firstborn is how it starts and ends of this great judgment with Egypt. Now let's examine this judgment a little bit more in detail. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 11 as Moses prepares to announce this final plague, this final judgment. Beginning in chapter 11 at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstone, all of the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there's never been before, such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now we go into chapter 12, which goes into the specific details of this event. And at this point, before we go further, we have to, you almost have to like take a breath. Because what God is getting ready to do at this moment is going to have profound implications into the future. To this day, there are implications in our faith as a result of what God did here at this moment. There are implications that, that have resounded throughout history as a result. It's not just because Israel left Egypt. That's not it. You're going to see some very specific things here if you follow along with me. Chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. You have to stop there and examine what in the world did the Lord say? This month shall be the beginning of months for you. This is not the beginning of the Hebrew year. This, the month that he's talking about here is the month of Aviv, 
or as we would say in the, in the traditional Hebrew calendar, the month of Nisan. This is in the springtime. It's getting ready to come up. But the Jewish New Year, the head of the year, is off in Tishri. It's off in the fall. That's the creation calendar. So what, what is God saying here? He says, so this month is going to be the beginning of month. Something dramatic is going to take place. You're going to start counting things in a different sort of way. You're going to look at the world. and You're going to count time. And everything's going to change as a result of this. This month is going to become the beginning of something. Now, if back there in Tishri is creation, what's God talking about? His second part of his great plan, redemption. Redemption is going to come to Israel on this month. And for purposes of redemption, you will forever count. This is the first month. This is the head of the year for redemption. Israel, from this moment forward, will count the years of a king only based on this month. When it says that David was king of Israel for 40 years, what does that mean? It means that when this month came, he was a king 40 times. And what they understood this to mean was this is when the Messiah, the Redeemer, would be coming. That when the Messiah would come to Israel, he will come in this month. At this holiday, he will come. The Redeemer will come at the Feast of Redemption. Why? Because he's the king. And this is the years. This is the time we count the years of the king. If you were to ask any Israelite back years ago, back before the Messiah came, and you were to ask him, when do you expect the Messiah to come? The answer would have been resoundingly, unanimously. We will see the Messiah, the year he comes to Israel, we will see him at the Passover. You remember the Messiah when he was being, Messiah Yeshua, when he was being confronted a couple of times, they were asking him on various occasions, said, are you the Messiah? And he wouldn't, he, he didn't seem to answer. He, he didn't answer very directly. He was always giving these indirect answers to, he was always using that Eastern way of that biblical way of thinking. He would ask a, answer a question with a question, you know, those kinds of things. And, but he kept telling his disciples, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But when he came to the Passover, he said, my time has come. It's time. Why? Because it's the Passover. It's because of what God instructed Moses. This will be the head of the month. This will be the month. This will be the time when redemption will come to Israel. This is when you'll count the time of the king. This is the time. That's what those words mean. And every sage of Israel has, has based off of this. This is a huge messianic prophecy. This is when the Messiah will come. He will come at the Passover. At the Feast of Redemption is when the Redeemer will come. And so we're getting ready to see a picture of the Redeemer, the Savior, the Deliverer of Israel. This is all being set. So what does, this is the right time. So what is it that we're going to do? Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according 
to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled or at all with water, but rather roasted with fire. Behold, both its head and its legs along with its entrails, and you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left until morning, you shall burn with fire." And this is the manner that you shall eat it, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Very interesting little detailed procedure. This is how you'll be safe, Israel. This is how you'll escape this judgment. This final judgment that will come upon Egypt. I want you to take a lamb. I want you to bring it in your house on the 10th. I want you to keep it there in your house. Check it out. See if there's any blemish. See if there's anything wrong with it. See if it's six. Make sure it's healthy. No defect. Have your children play with it. Befriend it. Make it a pet. Get to know it. And then I want you to do something really strange. I want you to take that lamb, and on the eve of the 14th, I want you to slay it. Everybody slay it. Roast it with fire. And then you're going to have a feast to the Lord, the feast of freedom, the feast of redemption. It'll be the Passover, and you will be passed from death to life. Do you understand, do you have any idea the trauma this caused the night they went to slay the lamb? The trauma that was in the houses of Israel. Can you see the father trying to explain to the children, you know, Dad, you're going to do what? This is our pet. This is our friend. We, we, we love this lamb. We, we've been having fun. You're going to do what? I'm not going to eat any of that. I don't want to eat it. It's just like, like the opposites of everything you would ever think. Why this lamb? I mean, God is smart. If God has been doing all these other judgments, and he's distinguished between Israel and Egypt, why does he need the blood of a lamb to distinguish between you now? God's smart. You know, he knows which houses are which. Why does he have to do this? We don't have necessarily those answers, but I can imagine there was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of discussion going on in the house of Israel. Why this? Why are we doing this in this way? It was to be a sign. It's so that they would learn something about the Lord. It was so that others, you, you, me, we would learn about the Lord. Let me uh, share something with you very, very quickly here. This is before the law came. The law hasn't been given yet. We, haven't, we don't have God standing on the mountain speaking the Ten Commandments to all Israel. We do not have the law of Moses yet. And we have God saying, I want you to sacrifice a lamb, and this is how I'm going to pass you from death to life. Now, I point that out to you because this is how Israel is going to get saved. 
Israel's not going to get saved by law at the mountain. No Jew, no Israelite has ever been saved by keeping one commandment that was ever spoken at the mountain of Sinai. Never. Not one of them. Every one of them is saved by the blood of a lamb at the Passover. That is true before and that is true now. That's true today. There is no one is going to get saved by God unless it is by the blood of a lamb. Now you can take that to the spiritual bank and draw interest on that one. That's a truth. And if anybody ever tells you that some Jew got saved, Moses got saved by keeping the law, you go show them this passage and you should know Israel got saved by the blood of a lamb. That's how they got out of Egypt. That's how they escaped the judgment of God. That's how they got passed over from death to life. And I have news for you. God's setting precedent. That's how every person is going to get saved. That's how salvation will come to all of God's people. It's because you have the blood of a particular lamb over your door. Now, for those of us who've done a little study in Hebrew, and I'm going to give you just a very quick lesson here, because you and I are going to go through the motions of that father. He has slain the lamb with his house. He has collected the blood. He slit the throat of the lamb. He allowed the blood of the lamb to be captured into a bowl. He has taken a hyssop branch, and he's now gone to the doorposts of his house and with this bowl basin of blood, and he dips the hyssop into it, and he's doing what the Lord has told him to do. And he, So he dips it in, and he's probably a right-handed fellow like most of us are, and, he re, and, he, and he's looking at the lentils of his door and the doorposts. And so he reaches up and he kind of takes the hyssop and he kind of, you know, kind of strokes across the top of his lintel of his door. And so he strokes across and, and he gets some more blood and he strokes down the doorpost and he goes over and he strokes down the doorpost. And did you all see me do that? Let, let me kind of, I'm going to turn now and so that you'll kind of see in, in right-handed fellow, I'm going to go over the top and down and then down again, down the doorpost. And I've, I've done exactly what God said. I have put the blood on the doorpost. And you know what I've also done? I've drawn a certain Hebrew letter. Certain Hebrew letter, hey. Hey. And that letter is the letter that means life. Life. Because when you see the blood, it's life. Actually, what we saw was a, was a certain Hebrew letter. Life. You've heard the Hebrew expression, lahaim. Lahaim, to life. You know, it's the letter for that. And, and if you ever see the little uh, ornament that's hanging, that a lot of Hebrew people, to have that one Hebrew letter there that's hanging there, it's that letter. What they're really trying to illustrate to you, the reason why that's an ornamental piece of jewelry to the Jewish people is it's not so much the letter or the life, is they're trying to imitate the picture of the blood that was on the doorpost. Their hope is that God will see the sign and they'll be passed from death to life. It's a picture of life. You know, the Passover, that's what that's about. It's that letter. That's the same letter that's in God's name. In fact, there's two of them in his name. You know, the name that God gave to Moses, the burning bush, was when he sent him back to Egypt to go take Egypt out of Egypt, uh, or, or uh, take Israel out of Egypt. 
you know, and God told him, he gave him this special name, this yod Hey, vav Hey name. You know, there's two of those letters in there. And, it, and that letter, uh, symbolic, means what comes forth. And what Moses taught the children of Israel, what God was trying to illustrate and teach them, was that what comes forth, these two things that come forth, is that salvation and deliverance comes forth by the hand of God. Not, not they decide to go out and get salvation, not because Pharaoh gives them salvation or because uh, anybody else gets because God gives them salvation and deliverance. And as I pointed out to you before, this is the same name that was sitting over the top of the cross. That when they made that sign over the top of Yeshua, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the reason why the religious leaders get all upset about that sign is because the first letter of those Hebrew words, Yeshua HaMashiach, Ve-Melech Ha-Yehudim, is yod Hey bav Hey. There's the name of God right over the top of it. What the name actually means is salvation and deliverance comes by the nailed hand of God, is what the name means. With a powerful, outstretched hand, you will receive salvation. Now, Israel in Egypt, they saw this powerful outstretched hand by these judgments. And in particular, this judgment of the firstborn. And this is a real perplexing thing for the sages of Israel because they know that this judgment, this judgment of the firstborn, that it was God went through the midst of Egypt that night. It was God who walked through Egypt that night. Only it's called the angel of the Lord. And they say, God was the angel of the Lord, and he walked through, and he judged Egypt. That it was God, actually, who did it. And guess what Yeshua says? It's God who actually did it. Now, the parallels are striking. Let's see. We're to get this lamb and to bring it into our house on the 10th of Nisan, the 10th of Aviv. What day did Yeshua enter into the house of Israel? On the 10th of Aviv. He rode into Jerusalem. What day was the lamb to be slain? On the 14th. What day was Yeshua slain? On the 14th, on the Passover. Just exactly as Moses said. And you, you know, of course, the parallels of the lamb of God. We know it's a lamb of God that is to do the work of salvation. It's the blood of the lamb, the one that passes from death to life. It's the one that's apart from the law, different from keeping of commandments. That's where salvation and deliverance comes from. Not by the keeping of commandments, but by the blood of the lamb is where salvation comes. And so when John the Baptist saw, the first time he saw Yeshua come walking up and he said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Pretty profound stuff for a Levite priest to be saying. By the way, John the Baptist was a Levite priest. He was a priest. He was the son of a priest. And he pronounced, that's the acceptable sacrifice right there. Just like Moses said, the acceptable sacrifice. How did Jews get saved? Before or after the Messiah? Before the Messiah, they get saved by the blood of the Lamb. After the Messiah, they get saved by the blood of the Lamb. How does anybody get saved? By the blood of the Lamb. Before the law, after the law, during the law, it don't make no difference. By the blood of the Lamb. That's the only salvation that this book describes. And I'm talking about from Genesis to Revelation 22. One salvation by the blood of the Lamb, period. That's the end of that discussion about salvation. You cannot take the blood of the Lamb and add anything to it. Now, religious men will try to, but that's it. That's the salvation. That's the picture. That's the pattern that's been set. 
Now, people sometimes get confused about other signs, other symbols, other remembrances, but this is all that the Scripture presents. And in fact, what Moses specifically commands us and teaches us with regard to this is he says, if I turn back to Exodus chapter 13 now, he says in verse 3, concerning this Passover, this remembrance that we were to do, and Moses said to the people, remember this day in which that you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. You will not mix this with anything else. Just this bread. Just this bread. Just this feast. Not mixed with anything else. He says, verse 8, And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Not only will you observe it, but you will teach your son about how you personally experience this. One of the things that we teach in the keeping of the Passover, every person who eats the Passover, you must come personally and believe. Even though you realize it's a, it's a memorial, it's a remembrance, you must, when you sit down, you must believe at that moment you're in Egypt. It's the Passover. And the Lord is passing over you now. You know what? The same thing is true of every person that we say of the faith. You personally must believe that Yeshua has passed you from death to life. You cannot come in and join in with a bunch of other people who believe it, and then you just join in with them. No, you, you have to personally be a part of this. Every one of you, individually, must identify with this Passover directly and personally. You have to have the blood over your doorpost of your house, you personally or else you do not have this Passover. Verse 9, he says, It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. It must be your testimony. There must be evidence. Evidence that you can see, evidence the Lord can see, evidence that others can see. In other words, it has to be as obvious as on your doorpost, there's the blood. You can't be in your house and say, well, uh, yeah, I believe that. Well, where's the blood then? I want to see it. On the doorpost, where is it? Where is the sign of life? Not you were thinking about it, not you were intending about it. Where is it? Because when the Lord comes, that's what he'll look for. He won't be listening to explanations. He'll be looking for the blood. You have to have it. And that's what Moses teaches us. And then he says in verse 10, Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time year to year. It is a permanent ordinance forever. Forever. No exceptions. This is the only salvation. This will be the salvation into eternity. And this is the memorial in which that you will remember it. So when Yeshua came to us, he did exactly this. He caused these things to happen for us. In fact, when we actually keep the Passover, we remember the Exodus. We remember the telling the story of God's plagues. We tell our sons. We eat the unleavened bread. We eat the bitter herbs. We drink the cup of redemption, and we do it each year. But we who are of the new covenant, we do it the way Yeshua did it. 
we, we do it the way you should, because he, he kept that same thing. Only he explained more fully what it means. So when we come, we remember his death as the Lamb of God. We tell the story of the Messiah. We tell our son, we eat the unleavened bread, we drink the cup of redemption, and we do it until he returns. That's exactly what he instructed us to do. And he said, you will remember, just like Moses said, you will remember. You will do it. You will do it. Just like Yeshua said. Just like Moses said. There's not one bit of difference between what Yeshua said and what Moses said. In fact, Yeshua was sitting there with the disciples doing exactly what Moses had said. There was not one bit of difference. It's just that the disciples didn't quite get it. I mean, it was there. It was obvious right in front of them. In fact, in that observance, it's also they, they didn't get it. You know, they take, um, they take three pieces of bread in the, in the Passover. This is the way it's traditionally been observed. They take three pieces of bread. They take the second one. They break the second one. They take the best part of it. They wrap it in a linen cloth. They put it in another part of the house. They take a pillow. They call the stone. They put it over it, and they bury it. And then at the end of the meal, after the meal's over with, why they go and they get that piece of bread back. And, and the, of course, the children play the little game. And, of course, they steal the bread. So when the father dispatches the children to go get the bread, why they're to report back. And this is the way it's traditionally done. They report back and say to the father, it says, uh, the stone has been moved and all we found was the linen cloth. And there's a question about what happened to the bread. And the disciples, they didn't understand what Yeshua was talking about the Passover, but when they saw the resurrection, then they remembered the Passover. Oh, because that's what happened to them. They were the children. They went down and the stone has been moved and all they found was the linen cloth. All four gospel writers record that particular part of the Passover. And we observe that Passover and we see the picture, the death, burial, and resurrection. From the ancient story tells the very story of the work of the Messiah. Now Israel is blinded. They can't see it. But we who are of the new covenant faith, we can see it instantly. We can see it. Out of the ancient story, it tells the great story of the, of the story of the Lamb and of His blood and how we're passed from death to life and of salvation and death, burial, and resurrection. And He proved He has the eternal life. He proved He has the power to save us and deliver us. And he took our sins upon. He is the sacrifice for willful, defiant sin. There is no willful, defiant sin sacrifice in the law. Later on, when we get into teaching the law, you're going to find out every one of them sacrifices is for unintentional sins. I'll show you. I'll take you the book of Leviticus, and I'll show you. I'll teach you. Every sacrifice that will come from the teaching of Moses there at the mountain has to do with unintentional sins. It did, they weren't sins that you meant to, you know, you willfully sin, because the law teaches that if you willfully sin, you defiantly sin, you do it on purpose, you get death. There is no sacrifice. But there is a sacrifice before the law called the Passover, called the Lamb of God sacrifice. That's the one that covers and passes you from death, a death decree to life. And the law came just to show you, hey guys, I got news for you. You are all in trouble with the Lord. There's not one of you righteous. Just to convince you so you would know the need for the Messiah. So you would know the need for the Lamb of God sacrifice. So we see this tremendous parallel you know, from the Passover to what the Messiah will be doing. What, what has been taught? What, what did Moses really teach us? What did Yeshua really say about this Passover business and the Lamb of God thing? The Lamb that we're talking about, this Lamb of God sacrifice that we're talking about, it's the Lamb that was promised by Abraham when he said, the Lord will provide the Lamb. I'm talking about the Lamb that Abraham told his son Isaac about. 
you know, when he was taking Isaac up to sacrifice him, and Isaac said, Father, we have the fire, we have the knife, we have the wood. We don't have the lamb. We don't have the sacrifice. And Abraham said to him, the Lord will provide the lamb. Now, you know Isaac wasn't sacrificed up there. And there was a ram that was actually sacrificed. It wasn't a lamb. There's a, Abraham was talking about a future lamb. That God would give a lamb in the future. He would be providing. In that place, he would be providing a lamb. And what is that place that Abraham went to? It's the place that Yeshua was sacrificed. That place. That's the place. So when I'm talking about the lamb, I'm talking about the lamb that was slain so that Israel's firstborn would be passed from death to life. I'm talking about the lamb that Moses would promise to us as a sacrifice for willful defiant sin, which the law could not provide. I'm talking about the lamb that John the Baptist would introduce to the world and say, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'm talking about the lamb that was slain in the place that Abraham said it would be slain. I'm talking about the lamb whose blood spells the very name of God and our salvation. I'm talking about the lamb. I'm talking about the very God whose outstretched arms saved Israel from Egypt and saves us from the slavery of sin. I'm talking about that lamb. There's only one lamb. It was foretold, and it came. The only difference between us and Israel is they saw it before it came, and we saw it after it came. But it's the same lamb. We've all been looking at the same lamb. Moses into the future, we into the past. Now, if, if this is so profound, if this is it, this is the focus, the Lamb of God, this particular Lamb is the focus, then how can, and this is where it's going to get a little difficult, how can a true believer of God, of Yeshua, hold with disregard and disdain the teaching of Moses when it's Moses who taught us about the Lamb? I mean, a true believer who believes in the Lamb of God, how, how can you disregard what Moses teaches? when it's clear that this is the teaching of Moses. How can a believer of Yeshua think that Yeshua came to do away with Moses? He didn't come to do away with Moses. He came to fulfill what Moses said. How is it that Christians think that the Passover is not a commanded festival to teach their sons about the Lamb of God? The reason why we got trouble in Christianity is because we're not following the example that God said. We're not teaching our sons about the Lamb of God, sitting them down at the Passover and telling them the story of the Lamb and how is it that Christians think that the proper way to remember Yeshua is to throw away the cup of sanctification, the cup of instruction, the cup of praise, and to minimize the cup of redemption into the size of a church communion cup? That's supposed to be the symbol of this great salvation? And they throw all the other cups of instruction away, the cup of praise away, that is the teaching of the Passover? They throw it all away, hold it with disregard. How is it that Christians consume less bread and drink than children spill from the Passover table and still refer to it, the amount as being the feast of the Lord? It's the crumbs. Less than crumbs. How is it they think that's it? Or how is it that some Christian leaders hold brethren in disdain because you would dare honor God's word, ceasing from your labors on Sabbath, and yielding to Yeshua, the Lord of the Sabbath. And by the way, there are many in this assembly who have suffered the disdain of other brethren because you would dare honor the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath day.
or even worse, how is it that the same leaders refuse to teach the keeping of the Passover to remember and teach the Lamb of God when it's Yeshua who is the promised Lamb of God? And Yeshua and the disciples ate the Passover. And yet they would say to other brethren, uh, you don't have to keep that. You, you don't need to do that. When it's the very teaching of the salvation of the Lamb of God. In fact, the Passover, Pesach, which means Passover, is the story of the Lamb. We, the booklet, the Haggadah, the story of the Lamb. That's what it's called. You know, I thought that would be the very, the, the very thing that we would want to teach. The very thing that we, as New Covenant believers, that would be the very thing that we want to teach. Turn with me. This is the last passage. I know I'm running late, but we got started late. Matthew chapter 26. Let's look exactly at what Yeshua said when he ate the Passover. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 26, it says, and while they were eating, Yeshua took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is, the blood, is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, for the most of you, and I certainly had this experience in growing up in the New Covenant faith, I heard these words many, many times. In fact, I was a participant in assemblies in which they would have the Christian communion service almost on a weekly, almost a every service basis, and, and they would repeat these words. Now, we're, I'm going to do something a little interesting with you here for a moment. We're going to do um, something we call an exegesis. Now, that's a big seminary word for, I'm going to give you an explanation, a critical interpretation of this passage of Scripture. And when we give a critical interpretation of it, we're going to define it in precise terms. So we're going to do a little exegesis on this passage of Scripture we just read. And the Scripture says to us that we are to provoke one another to love and to good works. I believe that's to provoke people to the love of God and to the keeping of His Word good works, to the keeping of his commandments. So there's going to be just a little bit provoking. Some people are going to hear this tape. They're going to get a little bit provoked, brethren, because we're going to do an exegesis on what you, we just heard. I have news for you. They were not sitting in a church when this was said. This was not First Baptist of Jerusalem. This wasn't a Presbyterian church or the United Methodist Church there in Israel. This was the Passover, and this was Jerusalem, and this was the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. And he was sitting with disciples, his disciples. They weren't holding a Christian communion service. They were eating the afikomen, the bread of affliction, unleavened bread. It's called matzah. It's called matzah. This was the third cup of the Passover. This was the cup of redemption, the cup of freedom. And they were remembering that Israel and how they came out of Egypt and out of slavery. And they were looking at the example of this is how Israel was saved before. And the Messiah was explaining to them how they'll be saved now. The same way 
by the blood of a lamb. And they were not looking forward futuristically into the age we call the church. They were experiencing the Lamb of God right there, just like it had been experienced before. If we are to join Yeshua in this bread and this cup, then it will be at the Passover, and we will be remembering his death, burial, and resurrection, and we will be remembering our Passover from death to life. That's what it's about. Now, brethren, the in the near future, coming up, and the way the Lord kind of stages this, this lesson is coming to you before the Passover comes. In the Torah cycle, throughout the cycle of the year, this lesson has come to you in advance of this season coming up. And in fact, the season will be coming up shortly. It's really not an option for us if you believe in the story of the Lamb, if you believe that Yeshua is the Lamb of God, if you hold to that His sacrifice, His blood, He was the acceptable sacrifice, His blood is your covering for willful defiance sin. He's what passes you from death to life. That's your salvation. If that's what it is, the Lord says that there's going to come a moment when there's going to be a permanent ordinance and you need to assemble with your brethren and you need to come into the house and get on the other side of that blood and let it be seen. And I want you to do it, he says, every year. And when you do it, I want you to remember. I want you to make it a memorial. I want everybody in your house to know. And I know it's going to be just like back then. There's some people in your family going to say, why are you doing that? They're going to think you're being a little obstinate, you're being a little, you know, why do you have to do that? Why don't you just do other things? I mean, you know, God knows the difference. Only God has specified, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to do it this way. I want you to show this sign. I want it to be part of your life. It's a very simple little thing. It really just lasts that one night when you assemble with the brethren and remember because there's a day coming, brethren, when the people who were willing to keep Passover who will escape the great tribulation and the judgments of death, and the people that are not willing to keep the Passover, they're not willing to go into the house and go on the other side of the blood, they will be subject to those judgments. Because if you were outside that house on the other side of the blood and you were firstborn, you died. But you lived if you were inside. It's real simple. We know there's a future that comes with us. Now, we've seen the pattern from the past to the present in Yeshua's day, and we have a sense that there is a future for us. There is another great judgment coming upon the world, and this time the angel of the Lord will come riding on a white horse, and there will be a sword coming out of his mouth, and he will be judging all the nations this time. And he's a pretty fearsome God. And you need to be on the other side of the blood of the Lamb. So when he sees it, he passes you by and you belong to him. Something to think about as we get ready for the season. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of the Passover. Thank you, Lord, especially for the gift that you've given to mankind, the Lamb of God. Thank you for the gift of Yeshua, your son, the fir your firstborn, Lord, for us. Thank you that he came and he was the acceptable sacrifice without spot, without blemish, that he came to 
that time the Feast of Redemption as the Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, that he was slain in that place. And Lord, we our confidence is in you and in him that you have fulfilled that which you said you would do. And redemption and freedom and salvation has been brought to us. And Lord, we don't want to be a people that would ignore such a wonderful and great gift. Lord, we also don't want to be a people who would minimize in any way, shape, or form the memorialization or the remembrance of such a gift. But Lord, we want our sign of you and your blood covering over our doorposts to be readily seen by all. And we know to do that, Lord, all we have to do is follow what you've instructed us to do. So, Lord, I would ask that for our assembly, for our congregation, that you'd put it within their heart, a, a reawakening, a, a, a newness, Lord, that if we love you, that we'll keep your commandments, that if we want to walk with you, we'll walk in the way that you walk. And, Lord, we already know that you've kept it, so we want to keep it with you. And, Lord, you promised into the future that there's a day coming that when you'll drink of the cup again with us, that you'll sit down and you'll eat that feast with us again. We know it will be in the kingdom, Lord. We know that we'll celebrate the Passover even in the kingdom. So let us, Lord, be about the business of practicing and hoping and waiting for that day, being observant, careful, Lord, to give the sign properly. We thank you, Lord, for Moses and the teaching and the instruction. And I thank you, Lord, for the brethren in this assembly, the encouragement that uh, they are one to another and to me. And Lord, I ask that uh, you'd continue to bless them and encourage them, strengthen them in their faith, Lord. Raise them up to be your people, to be your witnesses, to encourage others to come and to learn of you. Lord, that especially that each of us would be brought to that point that we would eat of that bread that will never hunger again, that will drink of that cup that will never thirst again, and that will be will receive salvation and deliverance. And I pray this all in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.